Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, the show covering all things health, wellness, culture, and more. The show for all of us who aren't old, we're better. Each week, we'll interview superstars, experts, and ordinary people doing extraordinary things, all related to this wonderful experience of getting better, not older. Now, here's your host, the award-winning Paul Vogelzang. Welcome to the Not Old Better Show author interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and today's show is brought to you by Golco and ShipStation. This is the place where wisdom meets curiosity and experience meets the new. And we are all on this journey of exploration and insight together. So today we're delving into a subject that touches all of us, especially as we age, the concept of uncertainty. In an era where quick answers and certainty are often valued above all, our guest today challenges us to rethink this notion. We have with us Maggie Jackson, an acclaimed author whose new book, Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure. Nominated for a 2023 National Book Award, Maggie Jackson's new book has already garnered attention and praise. It's a book that doesn't just ask us to tolerate uncertainty, but to embrace it, to see it as a source of wisdom, creativity, and resilience. In our interview today, Maggie Jackson brings to light how uncertainty can be especially relevant for us, the older adults who have navigated life's many twists and turns. Maggie Jackson argues today that in the unpredictability and complexity of our times, there's an unsung triumph in not always having the swift, sure answer, including the cost of clinging to a pretense of certainty. The costs of clinging to a pretense of certainty in our technologies and across our lives are mounting. Too often in corridors of power, across media channels and around the kitchen table, people trade airtight convictions that admit neither to the fresh air of fact nor to the winds of amendment. It has become common and even lauded to retreat from the discomfort of a measure of complexity or an alternative point of view. Calls from dismantling mistaken assumptions of the past are stymied by hatred, paralysis, and fear, while complex crises are flamed by a reliance on knee-jerk solutions. Uncertainty is no grand panacea for the ills of our era, yet simply by realizing that at any given moment we might not know, we begin to free ourselves from the destruction wrought by a closed mind. Already, tendrils of change are unfurling. No longer is it quite as taboo for a doctor, lawyer, or politician to publicly admit to being unsure. Some medical students are being taught to bolster their diagnostic skill by admitting to patient and colleague alike if they do not yet know. No longer is it an automatic career killer for a young scientist to explore the remarkable ways in which the human mind finds solace and wisdom in pausing, in reverie, or in simply doing nothing at all. And one day, sooner than you imagine, you might work side by side with a robot that will ask you good questions and admit to its uncertainty, all the while expecting that you in turn will do so too. In an era of flux, we are a long way from fully realizing the wisdom of working at the edge of the unknown. But the makings of a seismic shift in humanity's approach to not knowing are emerging. It's not outrageous, and increasingly it's necessary to ponder a future in which our uncertainty can save humanity. And it's not too soon to begin working toward this end. That, of course, is our guest today, 
award-winning New York Times bestselling author, reading from her new book, Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure. So whether you're facing changes in your personal life, adapting to the rapid pace of technology, or simply looking for a new perspective on the experiences you've gathered over the years, this episode promises to offer a fresh, enlightening viewpoint. Join us as we explore the uncharted territories of the mind with Maggie Jackson and uncover the hidden strengths in the spaces of not knowing. Stay tuned as this promises to be an engaging and thought-provoking conversation. Maggie Jackson, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here with you, Paul. It's nice to talk with you, too. You have so generously read uh, a passage from your, your new book, Uncertain. The book delves into what I'll call kind of the virtues of uncertainty. And I wonder if we could just start there and maybe just say, how are those virtues relevant to all of us, but maybe how we age? Yes, I think those are great points. And I'm thinking along the exact same lines that because older years are traditionally a time for slowing down in various ways. That seems to be kind of a mantra. And the uh, one definition of wisdom is the discovery of how much you don't know. Uh, that's you know proven in scientific studies. And of course, it's a, a truism of ancient philosophy from Socrates on down. And so I think when we can begin to discover the wisdom of not knowing, the wisdom of being unsure in order to gain the better answer, not just rush to an answer, then we can really understand what lifelong learning is all about. We can know that exploring the unknown, kind of being a little bit beyond our comfort zone is uncomfortable, and yet that's where humans thrive. Uh, there's a, also a saying among scientists, no surprise, no learning. And I think rather than kind of rote associations or conditioning, as in Pavlov's dogs, the latest thinking on learning is that we need to break our expectations and our assumptions, which are so entrenched. You know, that's how we sail smoothly through the day and know just what to do. But really, when we begin to learn how to break the inertia of our knowledge, then we gain uh, much, you know, room for cognitive expansion, for learning, for growth, etc. So I think that maybe many older adults live this in their lives, mm -hmm. and yet in a society that's highly, highly rushed and hurried mm -hmm. and instant, where no knowing is being redefined as something you just Google, I think we all need a little corroboration, even if we understand, as you say, the sense of this. Mm -hmm. I like that. I I do think we we all feel very rushed. I, I think in a world of 140 characters, we're all trying to, you know, unearth a nugget from four words, perhaps. When you're really championing this idea in uncertainty that things might take a little bit longer, that a good decision comes from some debate and it comes from not knowing and not being a know-it-all, maybe, but giving everybody a chance to kind of participate in a decision. But I think as we age, there's a great deal of unpredictability. And um, and knowing that uncertainty sometimes brings with it a little bit of debate, how do we kind of 
bring those two together so that we can live and get things done and be efficient with all of our time, but still give time to understanding a question properly so that we can really answer it and get at the right answer. Yes, no, exactly. I mean, the, the you know, sort of bottom line is that uncertainty is not the end goal. And here, maybe I'll take a, a minute just to define uncertainty mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. that will give, give listeners a little grounding. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, we often talk about the uncertainty, you know, that is a shorthand for the unknown. You know, that's sort of the, the headlines in the papers. That's the lament during COVID, you know, the uncertainty, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, and that, of course, is, um, you know, the idea that we can gain a foothold onto aspects of life that we can't know has been largely done through probabilistic reasoning, through mathematical models, through data, through predictions. So you, you don't know if it's going to rain on your daughter's wedding next Thursday. <laughs> you can get an inkling, but you really actually don't know. And so uh, that's, you know, that's, a very, that, that's the unknown that we just have to live with. In complement, or at the same time, there's the human response to the unknown. You know, that is our uncertainty. So when we meet something new and unexpected and murky and ambiguous, uh, you know, such as the future or just something we just don't know about, the shadow on the, you know, on the forest trail, um, then we are, um, you know, humans have a response to that. And, and that therein lies uh, many, many aspects of human life. Our response to uncertainty really has so much to do with, you know, argue, how we argue, how we learn, how we, um, you know, grow, how we um, confront sticky problems, et cetera. That, that this, the uh, uncertainty is an, an incredibly epic chance to um, investigate, explore, to be curious, to be, to, to, to wonder, et cetera. So it's not just a gateway as I'd, I'd like to you know, point out later, but I think it's an, an important to know that it's a way to keep the problem open. Um, and just one little bit of science that under scores this is that superior experts, that is the best, best experts actually take longer to address, to assess new complex problems than even novices do. You know, that's showing some, that's, that indicates that, you know, the best experts, superior performers are actually willing to embrace the space of uncertainty. Yeah, again, thank you. Because that leads me to this question about sometimes extended analysis is exactly what the brain needs in order to grow and in order to to enhance cognition. And so I think as we're embracing this uncertainty, it has some real scientific benefits to us. And you, you touch on, on this idea, but you also say that it's a healthy form of stress. And I wonder if you explain Explain that and tell us why. Yes, that is an incredibly important point. And um, so, if uncertainty is our reaction to the unknown, well, as we all can understand, it you know the first starting point is uneasiness. You mm. know, it's your first day, the first day on the new job, or you've moved to a new city, or you're in a foreign country and you're a little lost, and you're going to be unsettled by that. That is in a in a nutshell, a stress response. It's the natural response to the human meeting with the unknown because we want and need answers to survive. So we're given, you know, we evolved a stress response in order to motivate us, so to speak. You know, your heart beats, your hands might sweat, but at the same time, 
scientists are just beginning to discover what happens in the brain at this moment in time uh, when you are confronting the unknown. And, and they're discovering that there are remarkable positive changes um, when we're unsure. Uh, for instance, your focus broadens, you become more sort of vigilant of the environment. Your working memory is bolstered. You know, you get an uptick in memory, believe it or not, and your brain becomes more receptive to new data. So as you can tell, um, we don't need a scientific background to say, wow, that's a kind of wakefulness. We're on our toes, we're unsure. And indeed, one scientist told me, at that moment, when you recognize that you don't know and you've reached the, net, the limits of your knowledge, your brain is telling itself something's to be learned here. That's his quote, which is a wonderful quote. In other words, it's a signal to ourselves that the status quo won't do and it's time to update our understanding of the world. Uh, and so when you retreat from or you're fearful or just, you know, just really don't like uncertainty so much so that you won't uh, withstand it for even a minute or two, you're squandering the opportunity to learn. And uh, studies in laboratory settings have shown that the people who are most stressed when things are most unpredictable in, in a, a dynamic environment are the ones who are actually most accurate, better performers. They are leaning, I call it leaning into uncertainty because part of stress uh, hormones are actually related to cognitive effort. So in other words, you can be, you know, willing to be stressed. It's kind of called sweat equity. It's kind of <laughs> rolling up the sleeves of your mind, so to speak. I think that is just such an incredibly important starting point, uh, you know, so that we can understand that uncertainty is not a disaster. Hey, everyone, just a quick break before getting back to our author interview series with New York Times best-selling author Maggie Jackson, who's written the new book, Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure. I wanted to just mention our sponsor today, Gold Co., because I wanted to ask the question, have you crossed the benchmark of saving $50,000 for retirement? If so, give yourself a pat on the back. We are navigating Unpredictable times, which makes it paramount to diversify and secure your retirement savings. I've taken action, me and Gretchen have, by investing in precious metals like gold and silver. My experience, absolutely perfect, seamless thanks to GoldCo. Their top-tier service and the simplicity of the entire process left me truly impressed. Their credibility, undeniable. Successfully aiding thousands with an astounding $2.5 billion placed in gold and silver. Gold Coast stands tall with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau. Their reputation further shines with over 5,000 five-star reviews. Their excellence is evident as a seven-time Inc. 5,000 winner. Here's the golden opportunity for our dedicated Not Old Better Show listeners while supplies last. Goldco is offering up to $10,000 in bonus silver. That's right, $10,000 in bonus silver. Curious? I'll bet you are. Dive in and diversify your savings. Visit goldco.com slash Paul, P-A-U-L, that's me. Remember, that's goldco.com slash Paul. So secure a bright and diverse future with gold and silver. Let Goldco be your trusted companion in this journey.
Hi, it's Paul. I just want to mention one of our sponsors, ShipStation. In particular, these holidays, don't let the holiday rush overwhelm you. <laughs> ShipStation is here to simplify all of your shipping needs, allowing you to focus on what truly matters this season. My wife and I are both small business owners. My wife's business, her ballet studio, offers products for sale online. Shipping, returns, calculating postage costs, these can all be extremely confusing and challenging. Well, not with ShipStation. <laughs> so with the holiday season upon us, there's no question. It's undoubtedly the busiest time of year. But here's the thing. You shouldn't have to stress over shipping your small business or e-commerce orders during this festive season. That's where ShipStation steps in to make your life easier. Imagine having more time, more money, and more energy to focus on what truly matters. Whether you're running your business from home like me or managing multiple warehouses, ShipStation is like having a trusted partner that takes care of your shipping needs. Speaking from my own experience, we have been using ShipStation for several years now. It has been a game changer for us. The dashboard as you open up the software, is incredibly user-friendly, easy to use. You can set up an account just in a matter of moments. But what's even more exciting is that right now, they're offering a free 60-day trial. So if you've been thinking about trying ShipStation, this is the perfect time. There are discounts available via ShipStation for USPS, UPS, DHL, all of these great discounts. There's over 130,000 companies that are already using ShipStation. Fantastic record of performance. So this holiday season, why not give yourself the gift of stress-free shipping for your business? It's as simple as visiting ShipStation.com and using the code NOB to sign up for your free 60-day trial. Remember, that's ShipStation.com. And don't forget to use the code NOB, ShipStation, your partner in shipping success. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity. Take action now and make this holiday season a breeze with ShipStation. Our guest today is Maggie Jackson. Maggie Jackson has authored the new book, Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure. Maggie Jackson is known for her writing on social trends, particularly technology's impact on humanity. The book, Uncertain, is getting is already getting some just some wonderful praise. I just enjoyed it, but I'm not the only one, Maggie Jackson. Um, Dan Pink has, says it's incisive, timely, triumphant. Sherry Turkle and I, I love the, what she has to say. She said, it's beautiful, it's inspirational, compelling, and urgently needed. I just felt the same. I felt like this book is needed. The timing is just exactly right. Because I think in terms of where we are societally, we need to kind of move closer together as, as people that um, listening to one another, taking a little bit more time to get to know one another, being uncertain as to you know what an outcome might be might lead to uh, some tolerance as opposed to intolerance. And you, you have these great examples in the book about um, LGBTQ activists. I think that's very relevant to our audience. And then, of course, uh, the, the example that you cite about civil rights leader protecting a Klansman. Maybe, maybe tell us about both those examples or one you, you, you pick, your, your choice. But I just I love those examples in particular. And maybe tell us a little bit more about those. Sure. Um, 
I think that's a very, very important. And, you know, it was very enlightening to me to dig into the research and then to be kind of on the front lines of, um, you know, heroes, I will say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I don't think that's an overstatement, right. you know, right. with, uh, in the front lines with heroes of uh, tolerance and of unsureness in, in the right way. Um, and so just to preface before I tell a story or two, um, you know, the polarization in this country it has is so complex, but one of its deep roots is the human ability to categorize. I mean, we immediately, unconsciously, in milliseconds, decide whether that food looks tasty or it looks poisonous, and we decide whether someone is an in-group or an out-group member. I mean, mm. again, just almost instantly. Mm. When you decide that someone is from the out-group, uh, your facial processing areas, if you're looking at their face, your facial processing areas kind of go quiet. You label them and then you literally cognitively turn away. Um, you you know, process their face in piecemeal rather than a more humanizing, holistic you know, view. So from there, we can see how stereotyping and discrimination and dehumanizing roll out. Well, one of the most hopeful uh, strategies now, scientifically proven hopeful strategies for uh, not only combating categorization, but also for reaching better mutual understanding is something called perspective taking. Well, that's our grandmother's wisdom. It's just trying to see how the world looks from another point of view. And this is not empathy, but it's just, you know, what does it look like when you're X person who's so different from me or someone who I loathe? Well, I went canvassing in LA a few years ago with people from the LGBTQ Leadership Lab. That's a, a advocacy unit of one of the biggest LGBTQ uh, centers in the country. And they spent seven years trying to craft a way to actually speak with political opponents. You know, people are deeply, deeply against gay rights uh, and they were successful. I mean, scientifically proven to lower prejudice by as much as a decade's worth of um, intolerance in the United States. They could do that in 10 minutes. Well, perspective taking was at the foundation of this. And not only that, but one of the most important aspects of this work is that, you know, before and still in many ways, we not only talk to the neighbor and across the Thanksgiving table, but also we canvass, political canvassing is just making bullet points and then hoping you overcome, if not destroy the other person argument. Well, the canvassers uh, were actually, um, you know, able to throw that, their scripts away, their talking points away, and by taking another's perspective, were then inspiring the opponent to take theirs as they traded stories. And not only were the bias of these people lowered, but then the hostility of the activists themselves was lowered through hmm. this work. Wow. So you had, in fact, bought, created um, in a space for mutual learning. And the most important point is, well, uh, if I take the perspective of a convicted murderer for a minute and the results are amazing, you're more likely to move closer and talk to them and see them as a teammate, et cetera. That is just a leap of imagination. I don't and ever and ne never will know what their perspective truly is. What you're essentially doing is injecting yourself into 
perplexity. You're loosening your own assumptions with that leap of imagination. And Socrates called it, um, you know, the, the sort of infection of perplexity, which is a really strong but wonderful term. I think that's just so important that with a tiny little twist in our thinking, we can actually make space for each other. We can see not the set in stone wrong of that person who politics you loathe, but their potential for change. And I don't know if I have time to give the brief story about the civil rights era. Please, but, yeah, please, um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Thank I you. think what finishes this story and it, that this this kind of saga of polarization and and understanding is I went to Durham, North Carolina. So after going to Los Angeles to Canvas, I went back in time, in essence, to talk mm-hmm. to a civil rights activist who was in her 80s, very frail. In fact, she died a few weeks after I talked to her. She was sharp as a tack. And uh, to cut a long story short, in 1973, she did something which still is considered heroic and is very, very inspiring in Durham, across the South, and it's gaining traction in other corners of the world. Um, So Anne Atwater was a housing activist, very poor person, sharecrapper's daughter, and she was named to co-chair a committee to help smooth the way for desegregation in 1963 of the Durham schools. Well, someone in the city thought to name as her co-chair the head of the local Ku Klux Klan, which was, of course, unbelievable. But people were desperate to stop the tinderback box of potential violence. And, and, and long story short, the meetings came off and, and the two talked, Ann Atwater and C.P. Ellis. And at the end, she invited in a gospel choir to celebrate. And he then retreated and set up an exhibit that night in this elementary school where the meetings were being held of KKK paraphernalia. And at one moment in that evening, uh, there were a group of black teenagers were headed to, you know, we might think almost naturally take down that exhibit. And Ann Atwater blocked the doorway and said to them, you know, get away from there by quoting her, leave that alone. You need to read this material, not tear it up. If you want to know where a person is coming from, you've got to see what makes him think what he thinks. And so she freed herself from being in the wrong. She she freed him from being forever in the wrong. She freed herself from being on the other side, from being his enemy. She opened up that space of mutual learning. They became friends. And then he quit the Klan and he you know, became an activist for Duke University maintenance workers who are largely black uh, at the time. So, I mean, it's a terrific illustration. It, it truly is still inspiring to so many people today of someone who could see the potential or at least give someone a chance and not turn away. Uh, he, she gave him a chance. And, you know, I wrote in the book, nothing's changed. He tried to say in setting up the exhibit and she answered but it could. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Very powerful. Yeah, I, I think that is one of those examples that just is, is going to resonate with so many. The other thing that I noted in the book that I just, I really enjoyed was how you treat the subject of mental wellness, mental health, and, and how uncertainty can actually improve mental and emotional well-being. I wonder if you talk a little bit about that and tell us how that works. 
Yes, and that is an incredibly surprising. I mean, uncertainties links to resilience and mm -hmm. human flourishing mm -hmm. is it's not only so important, but so surprising. And and of course, for older adults, you know, who suffered more so than many other generations in COVID and through their own vulnerability and through the social isolation. Mm -hmm. um, one statistic shows that during 2020, one in four older adults suffered some kind of anxiety or depression symptoms versus one in 10 who had been suffering so uh, experiencing these symptoms before the pandemic. So I think this is uh, very important. And what's really interesting and new is that when people can bolster their tolerance of uncertainty, and I'll explain what I mean, uh, that's actually being used in, in interventions, programs by psychologists, the bolstering of your tolerance for uncertainty is being used successfully to lower even intractable anxiety, depression, or even just bolster resilience in very di different populations from multiple sclerosis patients to college students to people who have anxiety, et cetera. And what does that mean? Well, we all have a kind of a personal disposition, our comfort zone with uncertainty. Some people would love it if you threw them a surprise party. Some people really couldn't stand it. And so uh, people who really, really, really hate uncertainty are a bit more rigid thinkers. They're less open to less curious, curious, et cetera. So if you can kind of move uh, a little bit toward openness to uncertainty, you're going to be more able to contend with life itself, which is after all, always going to be unpredictable and unsure. <laughs> and so the other wonderful part of this is that the uh, exercise, the practices that are being taught people are very simple. Honestly, they are incremental, uh, you know, kind of daily life exercises, such as a trying a new dish in a restaurant. You know, we all go to the comforting old, you know, neighborhood joint and order the same dish and it feels good on a Friday night. And I, I love it. And I order sort of the same mocha chip ice cream all summer long, believe me. <laughs> but, but really when we can kind of practice being in the unknown. Um, so for instance, one per one, you know, a patron or client of a psychologist was challenged to delegate a little bit more at work. I mean, this can be true in the hall, you know, you might be the the doyen of the dishwasher, maybe just <laughs> let it go and let somebody else do it and see that it's not a disaster not knowing what'll happen, you know? So there are little practicing, practicing steps like that that you can take to get a little more comfortable. And what's really important is going back to the point about no surprise, no learning. You're actually using uncertainty to gain comfort in the obviously unsettling nature of uncertainty. In other words, you are uh, you are surprising yourself by showing it's not a decided disaster. And this these these sort of strategies are being taught to young doctors who you know hide behind certainty because they're so afraid to admit otherwise. It's being taught to um, again college students and all sorts of different groups. And the new it's very new work, but it's very very exciting. What are the other steps that really I thought was was a powerful one, especially along the lines of this idea of, of no surprises, no no learning, is the idea of daydreaming. Why is daydreaming important, especially important for creativity? Um, because it 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 can be part of uncertainty. Well, exactly. I, I cast a wide net 
And the book is based on what I call modes of uncertainty in action. So we have the surgeon deliberating, and that shows how uncertainty uh, under uh, duress is in, important and crucial. And then there are different sorts of ways of which uncertainty can be a kind of suspense. I mean, sleeping on mm -hmm. a problem or having a daydream looks and feels inactive and so therefore shameful in our culture of activity. And yet these are far more important aspects of mind than we give um, credit to. And they're all based on being uncertain. And um, it's funny because daydreaming was not denigrated in society, at least in the West, until the industrial age, when it was, be, you know, we began to uh, you know, uh, venerate efficiency. And in fact, daydreaming was originally in the 19th century seen as a female kind of uh, malady, really. I mean, Freud was scornful of daydreaming. And so we can see that, you know, this activity, because we are they call it decoupling from the rest of the world. Your perceptions, your 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 kind of sensory perception actually tones down as you and networks related to inner life of the brain uh, become more active. And and why is this important? Well, you're using different parts of the brain um, that are related to uh, cognitive flexibility. So and 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 just to preface that, I should say uh, most daydreaming is future oriented. So it's really asking yourself a what if question, you know, mm -hmm. oh, I might have a difficult conversation coming up with my child or my sister. And so I might daydream a little bit, launch into the uh, away from the here and now in order to run through different scenarios. And, and studies show that even if it's a negative thing that you're daydreaming about, daydreaming is a de-stressor because it lowers your um, you know, cortisol levels, et cetera. And the, the link between daydreaming and creativity is really cognitive flexibility because people who are daydreamers tend to be more cognitively flexible. Um, and that flexibility, you know, to stop thinking just of the familiar and get, you know, move into kind of the remote connections or wild ideas or something, you know, that's obviously a wonderful um, the, the daydream is basically the space with which to do so. And so when you're daydreaming, you're exercising cognitive flexibility. You're seeing uh, life from different points of view. You're seeing different perspectives. That conversation could go terribly. It could go really well. It could go in the middle. And so that's a really important uh, aspect of intelligence, cognitive flexibility, but also um, also important for creativity. And in fact, I call daydreaming the sketchbook of the mind, hmm. because just like the sketchbook that the artist carries around to try out things and to do some scribbling and to, you know, do the kind of Leonardo da Vinci sketching of ideas and try things out. Well, we have our own portable inner space uh, for sketching out life itself and for and for inventing ourselves and for inventing things in general. And I think uh, daydreaming couldn't be more beneficial. And yeah, we don't want to always be sitting in a corner, but having a good daydream is uh, something we shouldn't be embarrassed by. And we should uh, certainly encourage in children. So much great stuff in this book. I really, Maggie Jackson, I could talk to you a long time about it. I really want to, I really want to, uh, make sure that our audience uh, pays attention to um, 
Maggie Jackson and her wonderful new book, Uncertain. We'll have links so that our audience can find out more information about Maggie Jackson and this fantastic book, Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure. I just have one final question for you, Maggie Jackson. And it's kind of one of those questions, and you write about this in, in Chapter 8. This is one of those ripped from the headlines, uh, you know, scenarios where we're starting to see artificial intelligence really get an awful lot of attention. And um, the rise of, of AI um, has a lot of benefits potentially, but it also presents a lot of risks. And so I, I wonder if you could tell us how uncertainty fits into that and how – how it might save us, uh, you know, from some of these unstoppable machines and then maybe introduce us, if you would, to the Virginia Tech, um, not too far away from from where I live, the Virginia Tech, uh, I don't know, robot is <laughs> part of your answer for us. Yeah, that was a, uh, a wonderful, <laughs> interesting uh, yeah. uh, evidence of uncertainty where I didn't expect to find uncertainty whatsoever. I mean, you don't think about technology and uncertainty as going hand in hand, much, yeah, much less yeah. AI. Mm -hmm. And that's because AI has been basically founded and built on one definition of intelligence. That is to be smart is to achieve one's goals, however you can. That's the rationalist view of intelligence. So that's why robots and models and AI itself uh, is um, you know wonderfully good at learning as it goes and teaching itself and etc. And that's where the wonders of AI come in. But it's also where the risks come because of its potential unstoppability once it gains um, you know more and more intelligence becomes generalized intelligence as we say. So there are some of the top top leaders in AI who are now are working on reimagining the field. So that the uh, so that AI can be unsure, and and what does that mean? I mean, it, it's it's hard to grasp, but basically it means that uh, instead of uh, pursuing a goal at all costs, uh, the unsure robot will be stoppable, therefore teachable. It can be interruptible. It's also more honest and transparent, as they say about admitting its uncertainty. So you might have a cop robot that's accompanying a human police officer on the beat hmm. and they're chasing a suspect. And to, in today's world, the cop robot will probably give a um, indication, you know, arrest or not, or, you know, worst case, shoot or not, et cetera. But the unsure robot will admit that it's only 70% certain not 100% that that suspect is actually the culprit. And so by having the transparency of uh, admitting the uncertainty that, that does go on in its uh, you know, uh, probabilistic reasoning that goes on under the hood, that's a really important step forward. And it, it's really interesting because people in beta, now people are actually, you know, scientists all over the world are beginning to create these models to find new ways to create antibiotics or robots that you know will be used in manufacturing etc that are unsure and people who have, are using them in studies find that that unsure robot they consider it more intelligent really interesting and also more cooperative and more uh, able to, it's called the human compatible AI, which hmm. is, says it all. So I went to Virginia Tech, where mm -hmm. one of the leading laboratories in the world is working on this very problem run by a young scientist called Dylan Losey. And I 
was able to actually use a robot arm. Uh, you know, it was just going to be drawing a line on a table, which would be a kind of manufacturing type uh, activity. And this, you know, this uh, robot would show me different ways that it intended to do this. And in other words, it wasn't verbal, but I could, you know, with the press of a button, choose different ways. It was being unsure in the moment rather than, um, you know, the, 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 a current kind of robot cannot learn on the fly. And it really gave me a really huge inkling of what our new relationship with technology could be, uh, but not only safe, which is, of course, paramount, but also uh, more cooperative. And it also gave me um, a wonderful, you know, hopefulness about something that, you know, is very alarming because we know so little about AI in general life. And, and we also, I think, have to not fall into the trap, as we have with so many other technological innovations, of thinking about it in black and white ways. Um, uh, you know, it's good, it's bad, it's horrible, it's not we, with using our uncertainty to approach technology, we are all the more nuanced and intelligent about how we uh, create these incredibly wondrous but risky um, innovations. Maggie Jackson, best-selling author of the new book, Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure. What a, what a great conversation with you. Again, the book is uh, is just fantastic. Lots of great praise for it already. We will put links so that our audience can find out more about Maggie Jackson and her new book, Uncertain. Really a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for your time today and have a great rest of your day, Maggie Jackson. Oh, thank you. It was an honor and a pleasure. And uh, um, thank you very much for all your interest in uncertainty. Uh, and uh, all your fantastic questions. Wonderful conversation. My thanks to our sponsors today, GoldCo and ShipStation. Please support our sponsors as they in turn support the show. My thanks to award-winning New York Times best-selling author Maggie Jackson, who generously read from her new book, Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure. My thanks to you, my wonderful audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well, be safe, and let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show author interview series on radio and podcast. Thanks, everybody. We will see you next week. Thanks for joining us this week on The Not Old Better Show. To find out more about all of today's stories or to view our extensive back catalog of previous shows, simply visit notold-better.com. Join us again next time as we deep dive into some of the most fascinating real-life stories from across the world, all focused on this wonderful experience of getting better, not just older. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show.